Thanks for joining us on the New Beginnings Podcast, where our goal is to help people connect with Christ. We hope you enjoy listening. But, you know, I, I don't always say this, but you guys are blessed. And not because you're, you know, you, you kind of feel like, well, that's it's a church thing you get to say. You know what I mean? I didn't say that about the guy from Kansas because I didn't really know him at all. And I really didn't know uh, how he spoke. And I was just talking to a couple earlier. I'm like, y'all don't know what you have, like in terms of communicators. Because um, I've been to a lot of churches, a lot of conferences, a lot of places. God's allowed me to travel and see a lot of things. And, man, he, uh, I just love Pastor Todd's communication. So I think he's amazing. Love your pastor. I think he's awesome. And, that's not butt kissy. That's the truth. So I promise you right there. So, all right. But if you have your Bibles, uh, John chapter 13 is where we're going to begin. John chapter 13 is where we are. And we're going to talk a little bit today about love. Everybody say love. All right. Before we do, let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you that you, uh, you came here. You sent Jesus, your son, God, to die for us. You gave us your best. And so, God, I pray that every time we come in this place, God, we would come to bring you our best. Uh, God, not our leftovers, not what we have left to give, but God, honestly, we can just come in here and love you. Holy Spirit, now take my words and transform them from the heart of the people. Uh, turn them into something, God, so we can walk out of here different than the way we walked in, in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. 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 John chapter 30 is where we're going to be. Before we do that, anybody know what a cliche is? Anybody know what a cliche is? Raise your hand if you know what a cliche is. All right, cliche is something that you say normally, you say it all the time, and it's something that kind of started that was true. It started with truth or it has some level of truth, but it's played out. You know what I'm talking about? And, and in sports, there is probably the, sports is the main area where you have uh, lots of cliches. So um, just, just a couple of cliches uh, for, for us that we can kind of talk about. So you've heard this before, no pain, no what? Yeah, no pain, no gain. You talk about that. You hear that all the time. It's like, you don't have no pain and you have no gain. I didn't realize that it didn't just apply to sports, but also to all aspects of our life, especially marriage. And so no pain, no gain. You kind of learn that. All right, there's, uh, here's another one. There's no I in, yeah, there's no I in team. And I always got that from my coach. My coach is in high school. I was like, man, there's no I in team, Aaron. I'm like, but there is in winning. Give me the ball. You know what I'm saying? And so, um, you know, they have that. Um, another one was, um, it's not, it's not whether you win or lose, it's what? It's how you play the game. You know who made that cliche up? Losers. That's who made that cliche up, you know, because, you know, you don't have, we just go out there and we just hug everybody. Look, I think the single greatest cultural flaw right now inside of kids is the sports teams that get like participatory awards. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Like everybody just gets a gold medal. Like, no, no, not everybody just gets a gold medal. Like, well, you know, he, he just, he, he gets a gold star for going out there. No, my son, don't give my son nothing. One time they tried to give my son like a participatory award. I said, no, no, no. I took it and we, we burned it together. It was great. It was a great <laughs> teaching moment. But one of the greatest cliches uh, that, I, 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 that my, my coach used to teach me when I was in high school was begin with the end in mind. You ever heard of that? Begin with the end in mind. When I was in high school, I used to wrestle. And um, man, if I had the picture, I would show it to you. Some of you guys have seen this picture, but I have this picture when I was in high school and I used to wrestle a lot. And I didn't grow up wrestling or anything like that, but I actually started it in high school and I was really good. I was like a natural talent. Anybody ever been like a natural talent in something? So I went there, I went into high school, and when you wrestle in high school sports, they, they turn off all the lights, there's like a gymnasium, they turn, they put the, the big mat in the middle, and the way you wrestle in high school is you each have matches in individual weight classes, and then what you do is you add it all up, and whoever has the most points wins in the team. Well, I was in like the heavyweight class, because I was a little chunky when I was in high school, and so we, I was at the end, and before you go out and run, and before you do the, any of the matches, you walk out and you shake hands with your opponent. Well, I was going to run out there and shake hands, and I told my coach, I was like, coach, and he He's like, man, Aaron, you got to visualize an attack and begin with the 
end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. I'm like, all right, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to start. And I'm going to set the tone by squeezing this guy's hand. When I go out there, I'm going to scare him a little bit. So I run out there. And the guy can only be described, my opponent, as like, uh, y'all ever seen Rocky when they, he fights the Russian? You know what I'm talking about? And I walk out there, I'm telling you, and I, I, I sat down, I kind of got on my, I got down, I'm going to shake his hand because you kind of run out in the middle and there's sounds and there's crowds screaming. And I'm like, put my hand out and he shakes my hand. And I'm telling you, I heard under his breath a little bit like, I must break you, like kind of that. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Like it was just a little bit. And so I put my hand out and I squeeze as hard as I can. He smiles, then he squeezes as hard as he can. And my bones in my hand kind of cracked a little bit. They started popping. And I, and I did this move that, you know, you just don't do. I did this move because when you show somebody you hurt, you, you, I was like, uh, like that. And he knew it. He had me. And that was it. So we go out there to start the match kind of towards the end, and I was the deciding match. Like, if I would have just got a couple of points, we would have won the match. So I walk out there, and I'm like, I'm going out there, and I'm like, and I'm coach, what am I going to do? He's going to hurt me. He's going to, Arlovsky out there is going to, it's not going to be good. And he goes, Aaron, begin with the end in mind. Visualize an attack. Begin with the end in mind. Come on, you can do this. And I'm like, all right. So I go out there, and I put my hand out. He shakes my hand, cracks it again. And, and then when I came to on the bench... I asked my coach, I said, coach, what happened? And he goes, he goes, well, he began with the end in mind, you know, <laughs> he visualized and he attacked. And I was like, man, I, and, I, and I was thinking about this the other day because in a, in a lot of times, if you don't know what the end game is as a Christian, you know, you, what, de, what determines what you do now really is determined by like how, what, how you want to end in life, you know, I've been at uh, like some you know, deathbeds and, and some funerals. And, and here's what I realized, like people at the end of their life, they want people there to like celebrate their life, not their death. You know what I'm talking about? And I, I've been at places where they didn't have very many people because of how they lived. Um, and, and I've talked to, to people who, who are frustrated that they don't have friends or connections or people or, or people around them that love them, yet they don't act in a sense or in a way that actually provides them the ability to have friends or to be connected with people. And so I, I thought, you know what, if, if, if the end game is for us, and, and just so you know this, this is for scripture for all of us, if you're a Christian or you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, if you wear that banner, the goal for you and for me is to reflect God in all that we do. Like, not to earn his love, not to be a part of the team. It's actually just to show you are on the team. It's kind of like, this is what we do because we're part of a family, and this is what family does. And so that's our goal. That's our end game, to reflect God in all that we do. And if that's the case, here's what I found interesting, that life really does get in the way of me trying to be godly. Has anybody ever had that problem like me? Like, like I, 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 I love God, and I read the Bible. And I'm like, man, that's so good. We should love people. And then I have kids. Right? And, and I had like four chances to create the perfect individual and it still never happened. And yet when I look at my kids, they drive me crazy. They drive me further away from God sometimes than I want to be. Or you get married, you know what I'm, right? And you wake up and you look over at that bride or that husband that was supposed to be the knight in shining armor and there's eye boogers and he looks crazy and you don't really know what his breath smells like other than death. And you're just kind of like, I don't really know. Or you go to your work, right? Your work, and you're like, man, I wish I thought like, like I could be a Christian if I didn't have to go to work and work with my boss and work with my people that I have to work with and do the thing. I just never thought, and I, so I thought, if the end game is for us to look like Jesus, 
in a world with difficult people, then how, how do we do that? I'm so glad that you asked. That's what my message is about today. John chapter, John chapter 13, um, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and we'll read it. John chapter 13, if not, it'll be up on the screens. And it says this, it says, a new commandment I give you. So he's, he's establishing a new commandment. He says, I give to you that you to love one another just as I have loved you. So he sets a standard, right? This is a new standard set from a previous standard that was asked to him by his disciples. Matthew chapter 22 goes and talks about a previous moment with him and his disciples. And his disciples asked him this. He says, uh, uh, Rabbi, what, are the, what is the greatest commandment? He says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. And then he said, you should love your neighbor as yourself. He says, so here's what I want you to do, that the standard that I want you to love people at before is for you to love people as you want to be loved. That's very Moses thinking. That's very uh, Levitical thinking. It's old commandment, old, old covenant, old lifestyle thinking. And then in Jesus goes, hey, you know what? Before I leave, because this, start, this conversation in John chapter 13 was right before he was going to die for you and for me and for all of mankind. He says, I want to adjust the standard and establish Jesus thinking. Now I don't want you to love people like I want you want to be loved. I want you to love people how I love you. So he, he kind of adjusts this new paradigm, this new type of standard. He says Moses thinking was great because he even talks about, again, even in his greatest commandment moment, he was referencing the, the, the Ten Commandments, which the first four were all about loving God, and the last six were all about loving others. He says, remember, love God and then love others. But now you're in Jesus' time. I want you to love people like I love you. That's, what, that's how I, I want you to do it. And he goes on to say, by this, which is what? What's this? By the love. Everybody say love. love. Yeah, love. It's not your question. By this, love, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He said, not passion. Passion's good. It's not that, though. Not truth. Y'all ever meet the truth people? Like, no, pastor, he's got to know the truth, because if he knows the truth, then he's going to fix it. It's like people who tell you, like, well, as long as, um, as they know what's right and wrong, they won't do it. Really? How is that working out for you? You know what sin is. Do you still sin? Of course you do. But they say, no, pastor, you need to have truth, because truth is the most important thing. It's not religious tradition. It's not necessarily all the good things that you do. He said, that's not how you're going. It's not the Christian bumper sticker, right? It's not the little fish on the back of your car. It's not, it's not all the things that make you quote-unquote Christian. He says, here's how you're defined as a follower of me. It's love. It's love. It's love. And so that begs the question for me, at least for me as I look, like what does that love look like? Like if it's, okay, because you've heard that before, like we should love everybody. Okay, well, what, what, what does that really look like? I'm so glad that you asked me that. First Corinthians chapter 13, Paul talks about this when he's writing this letter, which is Corinthians is a letter uh, he's writing to the church of Corinth. He's writing a letter to a church that is fairly new. It's doing great. It's growing. It's doing, feels good, feels solid, feels excitement. If it, there's family there, there's things going on. And he writes this letter to them to address some of the division that's actually starting to begin inside of the church. He's starting to, he's, he's noticing that these little tribes are popping up, like in the churches that we have now, like, because this is not new, that you have different denominations or different tribes or different areas you come from. He realizes, scholars say that there's, at the same time that the church is growing, it's both splitting because of arrogance and pride and because of different tribes and different ways they interpret scripture and different ways they want to express themselves inside of a church. And he writes to them and says, here's how people are really going to know. 
1 Corinthians chapter 13, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men of angels, but I have not, what's that word that we're using today? Love. If I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or I'm a clanging cymbal. What he was referencing then at that time, the only time you used a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal was in a play when they did like theatrical plays. What he was doing is he was saying, if you do, if you have speak in the tongues of angels, if you can interpret what God is saying from his holy people and his holy places, then you still don't have love. You're like a play actor. You're playing it out. You're fake. You're an actor. You're not, you're, you're at the, at the core of who you are. You're a hypocrite. He goes on. He goes, I haven't offended everybody. I've only offended one tribe. Let me keep going. He says, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but not love, I am nothing. He goes after the prophetic people. He says, oh, you got the prophets over there, and I know you guys think prophetic is the big thing, and you got to prophesy and do all things, and those are good, but listen, you're not, you're missing it. Then he goes after the truth people. Remember, again, the truth bomb people, the people who have to make sure that you know what truth is, and if you don't know what truth is, you got to be truth, truth with the truth, and you have to have some more truth, and then, hey, after that, after you have some truth, add some truth to that, and then you'll be good, and then you'll know you're a disciple, Paul says, that's not it. You're missing it. And then he goes on to the faith people. How many of y'all have the faith? Like, I got faith to move mountains. Like, you, if you have, like, the faith of the faith, you can do so much faith. You have just faith, and, and you stake your claim in who you are as a person of faith, but you don't have love. You missed it. And he goes, well, there's some more kinds of people in here. Let me keep going. And he goes, if I have, if I give away all I have, this is, this, is, this is interesting. He goes, if I deliver up my body to be burned but not have love, I gain nothing. He goes after the people who say that I can give my way out of things. I can be so generous. And I, can be, I can even give my life away if I'm, just so, if I'm so open and I just walk away with things. And if I don't have love, he goes to say that if you become a martyr for your faith but you don't have love, you have Gains nothing. And then he goes on to say, here's what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. does not rejoice of wrongdoing, but rejoices of the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. How many of y'all have ever heard that scripture? Right? Raise your hand if you heard that scripture. Of course you have, because you've been to a wedding. The funny thing about that, though, is Paul wasn't writing a love letter. I just told you what he was writing. He wasn't writing a poem. He wasn't writing something that you put on your wall inside of your house and you can kind of go, kids, here's what love is. He was writing a rebuke to the church, not to non-believers and not to people who were looking for a great poem inside of a wedding. He was, he was rebuking the leaders of the church saying, this is what love actually looks like. It is not a description, it is a prescription that you need to actually act in this manner if you want to get what you want out of life. Remember, the end game is to reflect God in all that you do. Begin with the end, right, in mind. Begin with the end in mind. It was a prescription, not a description. Because we look at that as a descriptive verse. Like, oh, well, that's what love is. No, no, Paul was saying this is what you do when you want to love. This is, if you want to get this out of your life, love like this. So, if that's the case, I thought I'd talk about three ways to navigate difficult people in your life, because the universal thing in all of humanity is that you and I will deal with difficult people. Y'all live in the Bay Area. <laughs> I lived here for 10 years. I get it, right? Y'all live, there's some difficult people in the world. How many of y'all have dealt with difficult people this last week? Raise your hand. Raise it, raise it. Everybody, okay, like you have deodorant on, great. If you didn't raise your hand, you're probably the difficult person in your life. I'm just teasing. 
how to difficult how to navigate difficult people today. Number one, number one, how to deal with, how to love like Jesus, how to love like Jesus to the difficult people in our life. Number one is to look in, then out. Look in first, then out. Start with you. There's a great story that I, I, I read the other day, and it was about uh, a, a Scottish guy who just moved to America. He lived in Scotland, and he moved to America, and he moved to New York, and he got to New York, and he was in there, and, and, and his mom came to visit him after a year he was in New York. And his mom came down, sat down with him in his side of his apartment. She said, honey, how are you doing? Now, how's New York? How's America treating you? And he goes, man, mom, these people are just mean. And she goes, well, what are you talking about? Give me that. He goes, he goes, man, you know, I just, they're just mean. They're rude. They're inconsiderate. They bang on my walls all night long. They, they scream at me in the hallways. We just, man, they are just the meanest, ugliest, nastiest, most difficult people. I mean, I thought I knew Americans, but these people are just rude. And mom goes, man, I'm so sorry to hear that, honey. I, I, man, I just thought that you'd be better. I thought everything would be okay. What's wrong? She goes, she goes, is there, you know, tell me, tell me about how do you deal with that? How do you deal with difficult people, honey? And he goes, well, I guess I just do what I do every single night at about 11.30 at night. I just sit on my bed and I play bagpipes all night long. <laughs> all right, so that's a cheesy joke. But the point is, is that we're kind of like that. Like, aren't we a little like that? Like we go, look, everybody else in the world, there's something wrong with them. There's a great statement my friend used to tell me. He said, Aaron, if it's everyone else, it's not everyone else. What he was saying was, he says, actually, it could be. I don't know if it is, but it could be you. And in that moment, the guy didn't realize that everything that everybody else, you know, everybody else was difficult. Everybody else was mean. Everybody else was having a hard time living with them. Everybody else, it was everybody else's problem. And yet, what he didn't realize is it was the very things that he was doing, was the very way that he was living his life that actually caused the difficult people in their life. Now, I know this is probably not an amen moment, but it could be, it could be that the way you live your life could be causing the problems and the difficult people in your life. It could be. I'm not saying it is. Probably not. You guys are probably great. It's other church people who are like that. Because normal church people, not you, but normal church people, they love to take the Bible. This is how they do it. We disp this is our disposition to life. We love, if you know Jesus and if you're a Christian and you use what you love to do, you find God, you love him, and you're so excited because now you live for him. And so what we do is we go, I'm not going to look in then out. I'm going to look out then in. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the Bible and I'm going to do like this. It's going to become my lens to the world. It's like my lens, it's my measuring rod, it's my stick to the world. It's like, okay, I'm going to go, I'm like, I'm going to see if you measure up. Okay, you, no, you don't measure up. No, uh-uh, I'm not going to treat you. Okay, what, mm, you're right, you're, no, you didn't make it. Oh, you know, you're close. I'm going to go ahead and use that grace thing that I learned about. And you're in. Okay, you're good with me. Yep, you made it. Nope, you didn't make it. And we look around and we keep people at arm's length with scripture and with Bible. And so now all of a sudden, Bible and Jesus things are now the like, hoop they have to jump over because you look at everybody through the lens of God's perfect will. When the truth is the way the Bible was written, again, go back to Paul. It wasn't about other people. The Bible was written to be a mirror, not a lens, not a window. It was designed so that when you lift it up in front of you, you go, wow, I need Jesus. It was designed to go, oh man, I can't, oh Oh, wow, man, 
I'm not, man, I need to, I need to change that. That's what a mirror does. A mirror shows you all your, your imperfections. How many of y'all used a mirror this morning? Raise your hand. Tell me you used a mirror. You, if you don't use a mirror before you walk out of the, it's not a vain thing. Sometimes you just need to know you don't have a booger hanging out, right? Like, let's just be real, right? Like, but the truth is mirrors were designed. That's what the Bible was supposed to be. It was supposed to be this way of looking in first. How am I showing the world the love of Jesus Christ so that I can provide the greatest opportunity for them to show and be the best person that they could be. Some of the best things you can do, look, if you live and work or have a life with difficult people, some of the best things you can do is try to be the best person that you can be. If everyone worked on themselves in the world, we would have a better world, right? Matthew 7 references it, you know. It's like, why do you look at the speck in other people's eye when you have a boat in your eye, right? <laughs> Simply because you don't see yourself clearly. If you want to navigate difficult people, the first thing is to position yourself in a way that says, I'm going to start with me, then he. Somebody say amen. All right. Number two, be patient, not offended. Okay, now we're going to get into Paul's prescription, okay? This is Dr. Paul writing a prescription about how to love people. Love is, first verse, love is patient. Now, I'm going to talk through every description in here. I'm going to get out of here around 6.30. Is that okay? All right, no, we got one. Okay, one person's okay. I'm just kidding, we're going to go through two. So if you're setting your clock to lunchtime, that's two, just be quick. First one, love is patient. I was, I thought, that's interesting that, that Paul would say love is patient. I think he starts off with it being patient. I, I was looking into the, the Greek of this, and, and the word patient there is makroth umeo. And um, it literally means, this is, I love this, to preserve patiently and bravely in enduring misfortunes and troubles. Quite literally, it says endurance to evil towards us. Like to endure, to start off, Paul says love endures sometimes difficult people in our life. Sometimes it's not even like you try to fix them because like that's what we love. You, I, you probably were waiting for that. Like, all right, I love to tell me how to fix all the difficult people in my life. I'm ready. And so we started with us first, but then we started with what Paul's first, first prescription about loving people was to be patient. It was that if you don't start with this, the rest of your disposition doesn't make sense. Um, I was a, in, high, in college. I was a runner in college. I used to be, I'm just kidding. I wasn't a runner in college. I was an eater in college. And so, uh, but I, we would, we, in, but, but like in, in, in running, I read about this in running. Y'all also watch the Olympics? Y'all know what I'm talking about, like the Olympics? Who of y'all watched the Olympics if you saw the runners and the sprinters? If the, the point of running and the whole point of it is that, that you must start right. Like, you got to start off the block right. Like, all of the issues can happen at the beginning. If you don't start right, it ruins the rest of the race. Paul recognized that you must start right with love, and it has to start with patience. It can't start with offense. Because even Pastor Todd was talking about, like, you either in offense, like, when you're walking through things in your life, you're either getting better or you're getting bitter. And typically, bitter people started off with an offense. An offense, really, when you break it down, is off and end. You really, you're done. When you're offended, you're done. It is done. It stopped. You stopped. You lost the race before you even raced it. If you cannot start 
with patience. Literally, the endurance of evil towards us. So how do we do that? How do we start off right? We really must believe the best. Is that you? Can I just take a Is that you? Is your disposition, like when somebody does something wrong or something happens, do you give them the benefit of the doubt? Or do you start off with like, I knew it. I knew it. I, I knew they were going to do that. Man, I, I, I saw it coming before he saw it coming. I knew he was going to, it was like there was nothing that they could do to make it right with you. Proverbs 10 says, this is a great scripture. It says, love overlooks the wrongs the others do. Like it overlooks, it literally, it endures. It doesn't say that something bad didn't happen. Because for the truth people, right? Because some of us in here are like, no, 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 but they did something wrong, right? We need to make sure they knew that they did something wrong. Okay, yeah, they, they did something wrong. But it, it was you that endured because that's what love is. Love is patient. And when you're lovely, remember, if you don't want to act like Jesus, this sermon's not going to help. But if you want to be like Jesus, because that's the end game for all of us, right? Then, then we must be patient. We must believe the best. And, and maybe the best way to believe the best is to forgive. I, there's a lot, you can do a whole sermon series on forgiveness. You can talk about forgiveness 52 weeks out of the year. But I just wanted to share with you maybe just a thought about forgiveness. About how do you know when you've really forgiven someone? That's a good question. Like, how do you know? Is there like a gauge? Is there a limit? <clears throat> so I was looking at scripture, Luke chapter 23. There's a great story where Jesus, he's on the cross and... The Bible records a fantastic statement that Jesus says. In the midst of everybody who had ridiculed him, looked past him, hurt him, betrayed him, turned their backs on him, spit on him, beat him, literally is killing him in the moment Jesus looks to heaven and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. How many of you ever heard that before? You all heard that? And I always used to teach that scripture saying, look, if Jesus can forgive, then you should forgive. But that's a misinterpretation of the scripture. That's not what happened. Really what happened was that Jesus was dying on the cross in front of all the people that he should not have forgiven. Remember, the truth people, remember, they were wrong. They treated him wrong. And yet, Jesus on the cross literally becomes an advocate for their own forgiveness. It doesn't say that Jesus forgave them, which typically, of course, that happened. Of course, Jesus forgave them. But he took it a step further. Remember, old Moses covenant thinking was, if someone offends you, forgive them. Jesus thinking, Jesus paradigm, Jesus covenant, new covenant, our life, New Testament church says, if someone offends you, yes, forgive them, but now become an advocate on their behalf to God the Father. So it makes it a whole lot harder. It sounds easier, but it's harder because truly loving somebody in the context of Jesus culture makes it really hard for you to love someone because you can come in here and you can come into church and be a really good Christian and walk out and treat people like garbage under old covenant thinking. But Jesus says, listen, I got to make this a little harder on you guys because I need you to wear my jersey well. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, become an advocate for their own forgiveness, even after they betrayed you. And that's hard to do. I can think of someone right now who, man, I, I need to, could I do that? To me, that's the gauge to know that you've 
truly forgiven someone. Because that's Jesus thinking. Become an advocate for their forgiveness. So who do you need to forgive right now? Who do you need to let... Who, who has hurt you? Who has offended you? Who have you started off on the wrong foot in this race of life? Who do you need to become an advocate for their own forgiveness to God the Father? Even if they don't want the forgiveness, you're, forgi- you're like fighting for their forgiveness for Jesus. Like, God, can you, can you forgive them? They don't even think they want it, but that's okay. I'm going to ask their forgiveness for you. That's what Jesus was doing. Because that's what Jesus does. That's how Jesus loves. Because at the end of the day, we got to reflect God in all that we do. Amen? The final one is this. Look in, then out. Be patient, not offended. And the last one is be kind, not right. Be kind, not right. I really believe this. I think that our pursuit for being right really clouds our purpose in being righteous. Your goal is not to be right in life. Your goal is to be righteous in life. There's a difference. And if you get caught up in the right trap, like I got to be right, hold on. They didn't know that they did. Mm, no, no, but love, 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 love is patient and it's kind. Kindness forfeits rightness in many ways. Isn't that true? Like when you, you've done that. Like when you're just like, man, I, I, this person's just crazy. I'm just going to, okay, I'll, hey, all right, you, hey, okay, my bad. When you know, you were right. But kindness says, you know what? I'd rather be righteous. I could put you in your place. I could show you. I can open up the rule book. I could let you know. But I'm not. And you don't need to tell them that, you know? Like, you ever do that? Like, that's, that's trying to be right, too. <laughs> Listen, I could tell you and show you all the ways, but you can have it. That's not the same thing. You say that in your head. But, but the truth is, you don't really... Here, here's how you really be kind. You don't play the game. Don't get sucked up into the game. I'm a, like a really sometimes competitive person. I'm not allowed to play games with my kids anymore. I was playing Uno the other day uh, with my kid, and uh, I got four of them. And uh, so like the three of them who can play Uno, we were sitting around the table, and um, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm winning because, well, they're eight and five. <laughs> and... Uh, Sometimes I cheat. You know, that, dads, that's what we do, right? You know what I'm saying? Dads, anybody cheat with their kids on board games and stuff? They don't even know. You don't want to admit it. Just me? Okay, anyway. So, uh, but anyway, so I'm like, we're playing and something. I get down to Uno. I'm like, Uno, Uno. I'm like, in their face. I'm like, I got one card. You ain't going to do nothing. And my kid's like, and I, I didn't know my wife was down there. I don't do this in front of my wife because she gets mad. I, so she's like around the corner and she look, looks around the corner. And she goes, and I'm like, Uno. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, my, and Erica's like, Aaron, what are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I was just kidding. I was just kidding. You know what I mean? And so, and then I won the game and I was like, yeah, and I throw the cards and I'm like, yeah, you're in your face, you know? And so I anyway, know I'm not allowed to play games with my kids. But the reason I tell you that is because the typical, look, at the end of the day, look, if you have to be right, you don't have to play the game. So if you struggle with that, don't, like if your mom comes up to you and says, man, I just really wish I can't wait till I get some grandbabies. I just want to get some grandbabies. Can you just give me some grandbabies? He said, okay, mom, I'm just going to be kind. Hey, I'm, it's all good. Hey, hey, if your boss walks up to you and says, listen, man, you haven't done this, and you haven't done this, and you haven't done this, and you're on this, and you know that he's wrong in pretty much everything he just said, you don't have to, you don't, sometimes, you don't have to get sucked into the blame game, the name game, the I told you game. You don't have to play it. You realize that, right? 
You don't have to. Because truthfully, sometimes just to be kind, you don't have to play it. Don't be manipulated by the world that is looking to not be any of the things of Jesus. Look in, then out. Be patient, not offended. Be kind, not right. I'm going to end with this, you know, this thought. You know, the end game for all of us, you know, again, is to reflect God in all that we do. And again, the, the, the principle behind that is more about determining all the things you're going to do in life leading up to where you're wanting to go. Like, what's your ultimate goal? Um, the other day, uh, I got uh, a couple months back, when school ended, you get report cards. I mean, I'll, you, get, you, know, you get report cards for your kids. My kids, they got a report card that said, um, I'm close with this thought, so y'all, I'm wrapping it up. Um, the report card that comes from my kids are eight, so I think they're in second, th- second, third grade? They're in some class. They're in grades. They're in school. And um, they got a report card, and what it says, it says, um, the, the, uh, the classification says, Didn't, uh, does not meet expectations, under expectations, meets expectations, and surpasses expectations. Now, I'm a dad. So, like, as a dad, I want him to have a new category past expect, you know, like, exceeds expectations, like, setting new expectations, you know? Like, is a genius, and he should be teaching this class. That's what the type of report card I want to get, you know, because I'm a dad, and, like, I don't, you know, I want to love them and stuff, you know, but after they do great, you know, and so, uh, because I'm a dad, and so I'm reading this, I'm sitting there with my wife, and I'm like, babe, this is just, man, I can't even believe it, and and they, they, uh, they got a report card that met, that said, meets expectations, and I was like, you know, that's good, but it, they could have been, like, great, you know, and I'm, like, fussing with her about it, and she goes, Aaron, what's wrong with you, and she goes, here's what I want you to do, I want you to write down all of the things that your kids, your twin boys, your sons that look just like you and act just like you, I want you to write down all of the stuff they had to deal with before their age of three, I said, why, I don't even, that's no big deal, I go, yeah, you know, I'm like, all right. So I started writing it down. So, like, the boys were born six weeks premature. I'm like, man, that's, that's a big deal. Riley breaks the water, and he comes out early. And I remember in the hospital this, you know, panic sense and had to have C-sections. And so you, they op- you know, they open her up, and, and so they take out Riley, and Riley's great. And then they... they and then, and then it's like when you're flying on a plane, you know, when you look at the stewardess and if they're freaking out, you need to start freaking out. And, and I look at, at the doctors and I see his eyes because you can only see their eyes, you know, I see his eyes. And then I see doctors start coming in and they start using code words and it's like, what is going on? And then they pull out Kellen and he was, I still remember he was blue and he couldn't, he wasn't moving. I remember how when the doctor, when the nurse walked by with him, how his arm hung and he put him on the, you know, the table. And, you know, they, they were trying to get him to, and he, he, he would cry, but it was more of like a, like a gurgle, you know. And she couldn't hold him for like a day and a half. If you've ever looked at your wife's eyes when they've had a baby, and she, you, when you can't hold your baby, that, that, that changes you. It just does. And then I remember uh, like six months later, they were eight months old, and every time they cried, 
under a year old, a baby, every time they cried, both of them, my twins, would seize. They would have a seizure. They would literally go from a flat baby and they would curl up into a ball and I couldn't move them or or, or help them in any situation. We took them to doctors and we got specialists on it and we, we, and we found out it's like one in 10 million kids have this type of moment where they have to have a seizure. You can't have a surgery. You can't take a pill. You can't do you know, physical therapy. There's nothing you can do. You sit there and you hold your baby who's eight months old that every time they cry, every time they cry, church, every time they cry, they seize inside of their life. They seize. And then, and then I remember Riley, because he was in such a small area, my wife's tiny, and he was, his neck, when he was born, his neck had muscles that were kind of, they grew together. And the chiropractor said that the only way you can make that better, you need to do it now, is as a one-year-old for one year, for one year, my wife would hold down my one-year-old and then I would have to grab his head at the end of the bed and stretch out his neck and I couldn't explain it to him. And he would scream every time. We did it for 20 minutes every single night for a year. And I could still hear it. I can. You know, and then, and then we take him to, to teachers who stood in front of me and they said, hey, you know, they're going to go to school, but you need to know this. You need to know this. And you need to get with your life right now to just know that no matter what they do, they will end up behind at least a grade, probably two. Make sure you prepare yourself in your heart. There's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do. And I'm like, you know, I'm a man of faith. I'm like, well, no, I mean, they can do, they can do better. And then they said, okay, we'll prove it to you. Come back next week and we'll put them in a class and we'll show you. And we're behind this glass. It's like a double, single-sided glass where we can see in and they can't see me. And they sit them in the middle of the classrooms and they do nothing. And they don't learn like other kids. They don't act like other kids. They don't play like other kids. They don't uh, smile like other kids. They don't talk like other kids. They sat down for 25 minutes and the teacher looks at me and says, see, I told you, they're always going to be behind And then I get a report card. It says meets expectations. Yeah. That might not mean a lot to you, but for my kids, some of y'all know my kids. Some of y'all, some of y'all were in here where you, you know my kids. You saw them. You were a part of that journey. And I remember talking to my pastor. This is your pastor at the beginning of that journey. And he said, hey, Aaron, what? And I was frustrated because I said, Pastor, I don't know what I'm going to do because I want them to be great and I want them to be smart and I want them to change the world. And he, he said, that's great. He said, but isn't the end game? He goes, here's the end game for your children is for them to love Jesus because that affects their eternity. If you were really starting with the begin, begin with, again, go back, begin with the end in mind, Right? That if it's the eternity is what's at stake, just make sure that they love Jesus. Do your part and trust God with the rest. When I did that, again, that's divine order. When I did that, you get a report card. And they're in the grade that they need to be in. They're not behind in any parts of their school. And they meet expectations. Because I did my part. I did what God asked us to do. 
And I trusted God with the rest. And there'll be moments in your life, church, with difficult people where God will ask you, he's asking us to love like this. And it's going to be really weird and you're going to want to go fix it and try to fix things. Like I wanted to fix them and I wanted to fix the situation. And here's what I'm telling you. Trust me, but if you don't have faith to do it, borrow my faith. Borrow my faith to say, listen, just start with doing your part and trust God with the rest. Trust God with the difficult people in your life and see if you don't have a miracle moment like I did at the kitchen dinner table where you get a report card that says meets expectations. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, for today. God, I thank you that, that, that we're inside of a church, a life-giving local church, God, which truly is the hope of the world. It's the hope to the world. And then if we don't truly reflect you, they can't truly see you. We can't speak for you if we don't speak to you, God. So we need to speak to you right now. We need to hear your voice speak in all aspects of our life. If there are those inside of this church right now who maybe struggle with difficult people, God, I pray that you can teach us. We can walk out of here with these tools, with what you have told us in your word and truly put them to practice so that we can change the world. If we start with us and we change us first, if we look in and out, if we pay, be patient and not offended and we first start with kindness instead of being right, God, that it's the, it's, it's the ingredients, it's the prescription of truly loving people and giving them the greatest opportunity to not be difficult to us. I pray that you would give them the faith, God, to do that, that you would give them the wisdom to know what to do in those moments and the courage to do it, God. You truly are the birthplace of all those moments. It's in your name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. Give God a hand clap of praise in this place. Thanks again for listening to the New Beginnings Podcast. For more information on New Beginnings Church, please visit us online at nbchurch.tv.